Hello, Campus Cronies, and welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. This episode is rated a 4. It's the story of Cindy Song, a 21-year-old senior at Pennsylvania State University, more commonly known as simply Penn State. On October 31st, 2001, Cindy went out with a couple of girlfriends dressed in a bunny costume for Halloween. But when her friends dropped her off at her apartment in the early morning hours of November 1st, 2001, it would be the last time anybody saw Cindy. Ever. To this day, there is still no trace of Cindy and her case remains open and active, but still cold nonetheless. This episode is titled The Disappearance of Cindy Song. So without further ado... Let's get started. Cindy Song was born and raised in Seoul, South Korea, as Hyun Jong Song. In 1995, though, when Cindy was 15 years old, she moved to the United States, specifically to Springfield, Virginia, to live with her aunt and uncle and attend high school. Upon graduating high school, Cindy was accepted to and began attending college at Penn State in State College, Pennsylvania, which is located in Center County. So I'm not familiar with the state of Pennsylvania, like, at all, so I definitely had to Google to see exactly where the college is located. According to Google Maps, it appears to be right in the middle of the state, about two and a half hours east of Pittsburgh and about three and a half hours west of Philadelphia. Anyway, while at Penn State, Cindy majored in integrative arts, which is basically a combination of arts, science, technology, and business, among other disciplines, according to the Penn State website. True Crime Edition, a website dedicated to telling true crime stories in the most informative way, reports that Cindy was a dedicated and disciplined student who had a strong head on her shoulders. Not only was Cindy attending school full-time, expected to graduate in the spring of 2002, but she also held down two part-time jobs while going to school. So when Halloween night rolled around, Cindy and two of her girlfriends, Stacy Paik and Lisa Kim, were ready for a much-needed break and a night on the town. The three of them decided to attend a costume party at Players Nightclub on College Avenue, a popular bar among college students. Cindy put together a classy yet cute bunny costume, wearing a pink polo shirt, a white tennis skirt with a cotton bunny tail attached to it, and she topped it all off with bunny ears on her head. Cindy's friend, Lisa Kim, described Cindy's costume on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Lisa said, quote, 
It was a very cute outfit. It wasn't like a sexy outfit. It was a very cute outfit. That was her thing. She was very cute. She liked to look cute, end quote. Though sources don't specify exactly when Cindy, Lisa, and Stacy arrived to the club that night, they do say that the three young women left Players Nightclub at about 2 a.m., so probably around closing time. However, the three friends weren't ready to call it a night yet. I mean, it was Halloween after all, and they were dressed for the occasion. So they decided to go to a friend's apartment to continue the party and to play some video games, which they did for about two more hours. Finally, around 4 a.m., which was into the next morning on November 1st, 2001, Lisa and Stacy dropped Cindy off outside of her apartment, located in the Park Apartments on Clinton Avenue. According to Unsolved Mysteries, Stacy waved goodbye to Cindy and drove off, but Stacy never physically saw Cindy enter her apartment. Ultimately, that would be the last time anyone, including her friends, saw Cindy. According to a 2018 article written by Nathan Jolly for australiasnews.com, Cindy's friends weren't too worried when they didn't hear from her the next day, or the next day, or the next day. This might sound weird to us now because of social media and the fact that our cell phones are literally within an arm's length at any given time. But back in 2001, it was common to go a day or two without some type of communication with friends and family. I mean, social media was definitely not a thing yet. And even if you did have a cell phone, it didn't necessarily mean that you could text. I was in high school in 2001 and I barely had a cell phone. Actually, that was the year my mom got me my first cell phone. And it was a big fat brick of a phone. And I'm not even certain T9 texting was a thing yet either. Even if it was a thing, my mom would yell at me for sending too many texts because it put us over our limit and made our phone bill sky high. So needless to say, not hearing from Cindy for a few days back in 2001 was not really out of the ordinary. What was out of the ordinary, however, was when Cindy didn't show up to work one of her part-time jobs. Remember, she was a responsible, hardworking person. That was just her nature. So it was not in her character to just not show up to work. So it was then that her friends started trying to get in touch with her call her, stop by her apartment, but there was no sign of Cindy anywhere. Her friends did go inside her apartment, but nothing seemed out of place. Plus, there were signs that Cindy had at least made her way inside her apartment, you know, after her friends dropped her off in the early morning of November 1st. That's because they found Cindy's fake eyelashes that she had been wearing on Halloween night, and they were lying on the counter in her apartment. Also, her flip phone, her cell phone, was still in her backpack, which also was inside her apartment. Now, her friends did think this was a little odd, though, because Cindy rarely went anywhere without her cell phone, at least, you know, not usually. So they concluded that wherever Cindy went, she must have still been wearing her bunny costume because it was not found in the apartment. Also, it appears that wherever she went, she took her keys and purse, which also contained, like, her credit cards, Um, and her wallet and stuff like that, because those items were not found in her apartment either. On November 4th, three days after they last saw Cindy, her friends contacted police to report her missing. According to Unsolved Mysteries, police and volunteers began searching for Cindy in areas that she might have gone, but to no avail. They even combed through a wooded area near the Penn State campus, but found no trace of Cindy anywhere. 
it was seriously like she just up and vanished. But of course, we know that doesn't happen, so clearly something was wrong here. However, police had their work cut out for them. They had nothing to go on. No evidence, no anything, really. This was in part because Cindy's family flew in from South Korea shortly after learning she was missing, including her mother, Bansoon Song. And they inadvertently destroyed all potential physical evidence that may have been inside the apartment because they cleaned it. Now, this was in no way a malicious thing or an intentional act to destroy evidence. They were just, you know, doing what family would do when they were expecting company after the death of a loved one. You know, you get the house ready, you clean it, you make it presentable. And they were not thinking in any way about the potential evidence the apartment could contain. Needless to say, though, this did not sit well with detectives who were trying to work the case and do their jobs, or more like it just got them started off on the wrong foot with her family and basically just irritated them because it interfered, like I said, with a key part of their job. Detective Brian Sprinkle, who worked the case, told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, We have no body, we have no crime scene, and we have no actual crime. So it's been very frustrating without any of those pieces of the puzzle, and because of that, it seems that she just vanished into thin air, end quote. Regardless of the lack of evidence, Cindy's family was hurting and they wanted answers. According to australiasnews.com, her family formed an action group with Penn State students called the Coalition for the Search for Cindy Song. On January 31, 2002, that coalition held a press conference fiercely criticizing the Ferguson Township Police Department, the law enforcement agency handling her case. Basically, they said that police were not doing enough to solve the case, and they compared it to a case of a 13-year-old white girl who had gone missing on New Year's Day, and, well, over 50 FBI agents were assigned to her case, whereas only one investigator was assigned to Cindy's case. After that, the coalition's efforts did make a difference because the police extended the investigation to a team of six state police officers after pressure from Penn State's Black Caucus and Korean Undergraduate Student Association. Eventually, this also drove somewhat of a wedge between investigators working her case and Cindy's family. Detective Sprinkle said they pretty much stopped contacting her family, apparently for, quote, Cindy's sake in the case and not the family, end quote. Nevertheless, all detectives had to go on in her case were hunches, speculations, and theories. They were so desperate for leads and answers that they even consulted with a California psychic, which turned out to be a big ball of nothing. One of the theories they tossed around, though, was that something happened between Cindy and her ex-boyfriend. The two had recently ended their relationship, but it was a pretty intense breakup. Cindy and her ex lived together, so when they split, Cindy had to find a new place to live, and she was pretty heartbroken about it, as any normal person with feelings and emotions would be. But detectives speculated whether the ex might have been involved in her disappearance, or perhaps if she may have done something to harm herself because of the breakup. But police ruled the ex-boyfriend out as a suspect very early on, and as far as Cindy harming herself or taking her own life, her friends and family said no way. For starters, her friends said she was handling the breakup well, as good as any other person would. According to News.com, Cindy was hanging out with her friends, 
going to therapy and taking medication to cope with her heartbreak. She had also recently moved into that apartment by herself and was just moving on with her life, enjoying her life. Her friend, Stacy Paik, told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, That's actually how she always is. She's very bubbly. She's just always happy and she always wants everyone else to be happy around her, end quote. Plus, police did find two tickets to a Britney Spears concert in her room that was coming up in November of that year, as well as a receipt for a new computer she had recently purchased. The computer was due to be delivered on November 6th. So, clearly, Cindy had a lot of things to look forward to, so suicide was ruled out relatively quickly, too. Eventually, everyone close to Cindy was ruled out as suspects or having potential involvement in her disappearance. Detective Brian Sprinkle told Sarah Gavin, a reporter for the Center Daily Times, quote, We pretty much started with the inner circle and family and worked our way out to friends and acquaintances, so all those people were cleared back at the very start of the investigation, end quote. Investigators then turned to the possibility of Cindy's disappearance being drug-related. According to the Charlie Project, apparently Cindy's diary contained entries that indicated she and her friends had experimented with cannabis and ecstasy. But investigators found zero evidence that she used drugs on a regular basis or even the night she went missing. So this theory was ruled out as well. One interesting lead, and quite frankly a frightening one, came in a few days after Cindy's disappearance. Investigators received a tip from a woman in Philadelphia. She claimed that she saw a young woman, who matched Cindy's description, being forced into a vehicle in Philly's Chinatown the night Cindy went missing. The woman told investigators that the young woman called out for help, but the man interrupted her and told the woman who witnessed it to leave. But here's the thing with this tip. One, It was over 200 miles away. Remember, I said it was at least a three-hour drive from Penn State to Philadelphia. And two, the witness's story changed several times, and police were unable to verify her statements. Regardless, they did draw up a sketch of the potential suspect the witness said she saw. He was described as having an olive or light brown complexion with medium-length hair. But when they released the image, police made it clear that he was not a suspect and that they just wanted to question him. To my knowledge, nothing ever really came of this, and I can't find anything in source material that says otherwise. So that brings us to what police believe is the most probable theory, what they believe is most likely to have happened. But again, it's all speculation and hunches. Investigators think that after Cindy got back to her apartment early that morning, she took off her eyelashes, tossed aside her bag, which still had her cell phone inside, and then at some point, Cindy decided to walk to a nearby 24-hour convenience store, still wearing her bunny costume, which also explains why her keys and purse were missing from her apartment, but why her backpack and cell phone were not. Apparently, this was not an uncommon thing for Cindy to do, walk just a few blocks away to the store whenever she needed something. Now, you might be thinking, why in the world she wouldn't take her cell phone with her, especially because she was walking alone at night? But while this might be a bit dangerous and naive, I can promise you I would have done the same thing at her age. Before our cell phones were glued to our hips constantly, I used to leave my cell phone behind all the time in college. 
not necessarily on purpose, but because it just wasn't as much of a necessity or priority as it is now. In other words, I just wouldn't think about it. And I was completely naive about walking alone. You know, I thought like nothing bad would ever happen to me because, you know, I could hold my own. I realize now that this is a terrible way of thinking. (laughs) It's not safe and it's incredibly dangerous. But still, it was how I thought regardless. And who's to say that Cindy didn't think the same way? Plus, she had been drinking, so she could easily have just forgotten to grab her phone before she left. Again, something I would have easily done back in 2001. Anyway, police believe she most likely met with foul play either when she was walking to the store or when she was walking back home from the store. This theory was further validated in 2003 when police received their biggest break in the case to date. A guy by the name of Hugo Selinsky was brought to the attention of investigators after police in the Scranton, Pennsylvania area found several bodies buried in the guy's backyard. What? Yeah, (laughs) he had like a legit graveyard going on in his own backyard. And yes, the bodies were all his victims, apparently. It wasn't just a bad, you know, like real estate deal gone wrong or anything like that. Like he didn't move into a graveyard. No, they were there because he put them there and this guy was a bad dude. However, according to Detective Jonathan Mayer with the Ferguson Township Police Department, quote, none of the human remains found at the property have been identified as belonging to Cindy, end quote. And DNA was able to verify that none of them were Cindy. But just because they didn't find her body in his backyard, it didn't prove or mean that Selinsky still wasn't responsible for Cindy's disappearance. When they started looking further into Selinsky, they began talking to his co-defendant turned police informant. I'll explain more of that later. But a man by the name of Paul Weekly. According to a 2009 article for Penn Live, Weekly is the one who led investigators to Selinsky's property in the first place. He informed police that at least five victims were buried in his yard, and, well, all five of those victims were discovered and excavated. So Paul Weekly seemed like a reliable source, which means he was rather believable when he told police that Selinsky and another guy, a man named Michael Kurkowski, were the ones responsible for Cindy's disappearance and, well, her murder. According to News.com, Kurkowski was a pharmacist who allegedly ran an illegal drug ring. But Weekly proceeded to tell police that Selinsky and Kurkowski traveled to the Penn State area and they spotted Cindy walking alone. Actually, they allegedly said they spotted a female college student with bunny ears walking down the street. Apparently, based on Weekly's testimony, Kurkowski, quote, liked young oriental girls, end quote. So the two men, Kurkowski and Selinsky, kidnapped her. Afterward, they allegedly, according to Weekly, imprisoned Cindy inside a vault inside Zelensky's home. They then assaulted her numerous times and then left her to die. Weekly qualified this information by telling investigators that he had no firsthand knowledge of her death, only the story that Zelensky allegedly told him. But here's the thing. There is a reason Paul Weekly was a co-defendant before he was an informant, because his story kind of started to fall apart and unravel. You see, he originally told police that Kurkowski kept Cindy's bunny ears as a souvenir after they killed her. He said this angered Zelensky, so he killed Kurkowski as a result. 
Yes, you heard that right. Selinsky was actually convicted of killing both Kurkowski and Kurkowski's girlfriend, Tammy Fassett. Why, you ask? <laughs> because remember those bodies discovered in Selinsky's backyard? Well, Kurkowski and Fassett were two of them. Um, is your head spinning yet? <laughs> because mine sure is. But stay with me here, I'll explain more. It was later determined that the killings of Kurkowski and his girlfriend, Fassett, were motivated by money. As I mentioned earlier, Kurkowski was a pharmacist who ran an illegal drug ring. Actually, according to the reporting of Michael Rubinam for The Morning Call, the pharmacist had recently pleaded guilty to the illegal drug operation, and he was about to be sentenced before he went missing. Or, you know, before Hugo Selinsky killed him in 2002. News.com reported that Kurkowski and Fassett were assumed to be on the run until, you know, their bodies were discovered. So, why did Selinsky kill Kurkowski and his girlfriend? Was it because he kept Cindy's bunny ears as a souvenir, you know, like as Paul Weekly said? Um, no, it does not appear to be the motive. What was the motive, detectives later discovered, was that Selinsky found out that Kurkowski had a stash of about $60,000 hidden in his house, a profit he had made from his drug ring. And that is the reason he killed Kurkowski to, you know, steal his money. Investigators came to this conclusion because Weekly admitted to helping Selinsky murder Kurkowski and Facet, disclosing that he received a cut of the money for tipping Selinsky off about the stash in Kurkowski's home. At least two different sources, including the charlieproject.org, claim that Selinsky spoke with police and admitted, or confessed, that he and Kurkowski saw Cindy and mistook her for a sex worker. He allegedly told investigators something similar to Weekly's story, that they kept her in a walk-in safe in his home until she died, and that they buried her in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. He also allegedly told police that he did, in fact, become angry with Kurkowski and killed him after learning that he had kept Cindy's bunny ears. Also, according to the Charlie Project, Zelensky had boasted about Cindy's murder to one of his friends. But police could never really prove Zelensky's involvement and so-called confession, if that even happened at all. Because according to other sources... Selinsky's lawyers refuted that he had anything to do with Cindy's disappearance or that he had any knowledge of Cindy at all. His lawyers provided a watertight alibi and provided witness statements that proved Zelensky was hundreds of miles away from where Cindy was last seen on the day that she was last seen. So after that, investigators actually turned their focus to Paul Weekly as potentially being responsible for Cindy's disappearance and possible murder. For starters, they searched his computer and found that Weekly had downloaded a lot of news articles about Cindy and her disappearance. Police reasoned that Weekly very well may have been studying details of her murder. That way, he could offer false evidence in exchange for a reduced sentence for, you know, helping Zelensky kill Kurkowski and his girlfriend. Or maybe he murdered Cindy and kept the media clippings as his own souvenirs, and then he perhaps used his knowledge of Selinsky's mass graveyard as a red herring for his own crime. Basically, investigators concluded, Weekly had a lot of motivation to lie, and he turned out to be a not-so-reliable informant. Ultimately, Hugo Selinsky was convicted in 2015 of two counts of murder, 
for both Kurkowski and Facet. He was sentenced to life without parole. As for the other murders and bodies in his backyard, all I know is it took authorities a long time to finally hand this guy a conviction. According to an Associated Press article, it took them nearly 12 years and one failed prosecution, but they finally did it in February 2015. However, prior to these murders, Selinski was a career criminal who had spent time in prison for robbing a bank, as was Paul Weekly for that matter. According to a 2015 article by the Associated Press, Zelensky and Weekly met in prison in the 90s. I'm not going to waste too much time talking about these losers, <laughs> but for context, I think the following information is important to know. So in 2003, Zelensky was arrested and charged with killing two drug dealers whose remains were among those five bodies found on his property. So now we have four of the five bodies, right? So we've identified them. In 2006, a jury deadlocked on one of the homicides and acquitted him of the other. Immediately after, authorities charged him with the murders of Kurkowski and Facet. Weekly, though, who was clearly an accomplice to the murders, pleaded guilty and testified against Zelensky. Ultimately, Weekly got life in prison, though, so him being a quote-unquote informant really didn't do much for him, now did it? <laughs> so... That means that basically the only two legitimate potential suspects in Cindy Song's disappearance are currently serving life prison sentences. And the other potential suspect, Kurkowski, can't answer anything because the other two killed him. But that still doesn't answer the question of what truly happened to Cindy Song. We still don't have answers of what happened to her on that Halloween night. We don't have justice for her, and even police continue to be at a standstill. I did reach out to the Ferguson Township Police Department, and Detective Jonathan Mayer told me that, to this day, Cindy is still considered a missing person, and that, quote, there have not been any new leads which have led us to locating Cindy Song or her remains, or that have provided answers to what happened to Cindy, end quote. If you know anything or can provide any information at all about Cindy's song or what happened to her in 2001, you are urged to contact the Ferguson Township Police at 814-237-1172. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 38. As always, be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. So check me out on there and let me know what you think of this week's episode. You can also reach me by email at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com. And you can be sure to keep checking out my TikTok for some additional campus crime stories that, you know, you may or may not have heard before. Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.